please stand for the reading of uh, Scripture. We are, we're going to come to this passage again in the teaching itself, but this is just a way that with our bodies we can say that there's something different. Like we're trusting that the living God shows up to inhabit both the praise of his people and also to meet us as we encounter the living word. Matthew 5, 1 to 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. So if you, uh, if you couldn't tell, we are entering into a new series and there's there is, I, I don't really know how to get out my level of excitement, and I hope that you might see just a, a tidbit. Today is us simply stepping into the larger framework that is the Sermon on the Mount, but the Beatitudes function kind of like a preamble to this larger teaching. And so we're, we're going to work our way through the Beatitudes after this teaching. Um, I don't know if they're going to be one by one or blocks of three. I'm going to decide that today, so that's going to be exciting. Um, and yet, uh, there's some work we have to do here because as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we come with all sorts of expectations and past understandings, things that we were taught, the ways that we've understood those passages or those sayings or even little, like we carry these sayings of Jesus around, like we carry the quips and sayings of our own family members. And I'm sure that there's things that your mother or your grandmother or your father or your wacky uncle or just, you know, your weird coworker, they'll say things and they stick in your mind. And that's kind of what these teachings or sayings of Jesus have done. And so we need to do some work to disentangle ourselves from some of those distortions. And so we're going to do that today. Um, And it seems fitting to me that we would do that uh, in the new year. There's, there's something that uh, is, is when I take just the Sermon on the Mount itself and the gospel according to Matthew plus the new year, it, I, I was getting so excited. Now, I was writing this teaching before the new year, and as I was writing it before the new year, knowing that I would deliver it in the new year, I, I was thinking a lot about the new year and the little rituals that we observe on New Year's Eve. And there's that... Uh, that statement that we all make, it's kind of ubiquitous when it comes to New Year's Eve. There's the, the final countdown, and maybe you, you said, who stayed up? You guys, I was like in bed at 10, I think asleep before then, I, I just in bed and asleep. Um, well, congratulations on all of that. Uh, and so that you may have very well said this, the, 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 the ball drop, the three, two, one, happy new year, maybe you little confetti and stuff. Well, um, 
So I was thinking about this, and I, I, the first thought that popped into my mind, maybe a little bit cynical, was really? Really? After all that came down the pike in 2021, do we really think that we can draw some sort of imaginary line in the sheets of time and say, okay, now this is going to be a happy new year? This is it. 2022 is the year of happiness. And I, I was just thinking more about, I, I don't know, I kind of uh, chased a little rabbit down this. <laughs> I was like, okay, so what are we saying when we say Happy New Year? Is this an announcement to ourselves and to others? Is this a prayer? Is this a resolution? Is it, or is it just, I'm so excited that I'm with some people and we're, we're doing something together because we've not done this in a long time. And so is it just like a shout of jubilation that you join in with everyone? And I, I don't have an answer to that. I did search the internet and there's, I'm more confused about what it means now. But, but maybe it's a little bit of all of that. And I suppose whatever that statement, Happy New Year, may mean, there is one thing that is true through that, is that it is indeed a new year. And that is where we find ourselves. And so that plus the Sermon on the Mount means that there is something to be had. And this is all in my mind as we're kind of shaping and I'm thinking, okay, well, what, what does it look like for a community following Jesus to enter into a new year with more than just a, a, this odd declaration that a new year is here? And see, I'm not, I'm not trying to like short sell the significance of Happy New Year's moments. I think that those little declarations and the resolutions we make can be a motivation for change. Uh, but I mean, if you've been on any sort of social media or you've already seen the jokes about people waiting till Monday to start their resolutions and, and, and those are kind of like, oh, that's kind of funny or, um, but it's also kind of sad. <laughs> So what, is, what are we resolving to do? Or you're like, well, Kyle, I don't make resolutions because I'm goal-oriented. I make smart goals because I want them to be measurable and I want to be able to attend. Like, it's like, okay, well, so I'm not trying to short sell that, that resolutions and goals can motivate real change. I'm just curious, will we actually see the lasting change, like the character formation that we want to see in us and around us? I mean, consider where we're at in human history. This is a little meta for a moment, not Facebook, but you know, like big. Um, we have more available, more knowledge at our fingertips than we ever have. We have, met they're like, they are vaccines that are created in months, not years. I mean, this is amazing feats of science and technology and human ingenuity, and yet the same plights are around us. The same frustrations relationally are there. So there's a tension when we say and declare or pray or exclaim Happy New Year and yet we find ourselves in the same place. Are you feeling this tension? Maybe it was just me as I was chasing that rabbit down the Happy New Year trail. See, I have no idea if 2022 will be a Happy New Year. I don't know if my year will be happy. I don't know if yours will. I don't know if this church's will. And quite frankly, none of us do and that's okay. It's okay for us to not know what is ahead. However, it's not okay for us to, to then just aimlessly search about. Because as practicing Christians, we actually have a place to root ourselves. And it's important for us to remind one another of this reality. And this is just a space. It's not the space, but a space where we get to do this. So this is my point. 
If we're going to be a community of resilient disciples, like if we're going to be a, a group of, of women and men and families and singles, like if we're going to be this motley crew in Des Moines who can withstand the pressures, like the, the intense forces of, I don't know, global pandemics and odd political frameworks and family dynamics and, I don't know, normal things. Like in my world, it's diapers and um, odd conversations with your mom and you know just if we're going to withstand all of the pressures of life we need a space and a place to root ourselves we need more than just a mantra for the moment it's it's almost as though we need something to hold us together and if you consider yourself to be a practicing christian there is such a space and a place and the scriptures describe it as the kingdom of god and, and I know that this can sound a little, um, I don't know, religious, or this language can then be fixed. Remember those statements that we hear from our, we, we package these little statements of Jesus, or like, oh, this is just religious language. This is a little space where we get to um, shake that up today. How's that sound? Okay, well, well that's where we're going. So um, the beauty of the kingdom of God is we don't have to build it. We don't have to make a strategic plan to get it or accomplish it. We simply need to recognize it and respond to it as reality. And this word reality, in some sense, I think Jesus starts to get us to this and get us to this place of recognition. See, in Matthew, before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has this line. He says, turn around, change your mind, or in Jesus' words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus' call before he makes this, these, this, these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount is turn. And so as we turn into a new year, I don't want to dissuade any of us from making resolutions or goals. Those are great, have at it. But what I want to do is perhaps reframe and disrupt those goals so they are more aligned with the kingdom of God. So we actually then, not just in this moment, but for the rest of the year, have in front of us the, the space in place where the kingdom of God is. And, and really, it starts to become this overlap of the life of the follower of Jesus. And so you might be saying, okay, well, if, if we're going to step into this place and this is reality, what do you mean when you say reality? I appreciate how uh, the philosopher Dallas Willard frames this. He says reality is this. Reality is what you can count on. It's what you run into when you're wrong. That's a great little line. So uh, that's a reality check is what you run into when you're wrong. And spiritual reality is hidden, but it is reality. In fact, it is the foundation of the visible, material, and finite universe. So for the practicing Christian, on just a really practical level, this means that reality is all about God and his kingdom. And so we must attend to that thing Whatever that, th like, what is the kingdom of God? We, we sing about it. We, I don't know, maybe we recite prayers about it. Maybe even it's used in conversation in small groups and things like that. Or you read, what, what are we talking about when we're talking about the kingdom of God? And so my sense is, is that we need a taste of that reality. Then we need, like, another taste. Then we need a full meal. And after we've digested it a little bit, we need to come back to the table. So this is what we're going to do. 
Because we need this constant reminder that the kingdom of heaven is indeed at hand and it is a space and a place that we can live with Jesus right here, right now. And if you're kind of new around these parts or maybe you've been around here for a long, long, long time, um, maybe this sounds odd to talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as a space and a place, or maybe it doesn't. I'm assuming it may sound even a little funky to then move from like toasting to a happy new year to then the kingdom of God as reality. And so um, we're just going to unpack this kingdom thing a little bit more. And then we're going to get into what Jesus is actually doing in the Beatitudes. And so just to talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as Matthew records it. This is not about where we go when we die. It's not this place way out there, off in a distant galaxy kind of a thing. No, the, the kingdom of God is what Jesus is announcing when he shows up. He's saying this reality is coming to bear. It's almost as though Jesus is saying reality has come to expose unreality. That the truest true has just shown up. It's in the flesh. So it's not about us going up to the heavens when we die, but it's more about the cosmic king, the creator of the heavens and the earth coming and putting on flesh to be in and with creation, to be for creation who creation's failed to be, specifically humanity. How are we doing here with this? <laughs> See, this is, a, this is a little bit of a different framework to talk about the kingdom of God. And it's not, I think, different from the scriptures. It's just different from what most of us have heard, <laughs> is that the kingdom might be out there, but rather Jesus is saying that the kingdom indeed has come. We need to turn around, change our mind about it. And it, I think it is because that there is a desire for us to have a happy new year that we talk about the kingdom. And, and what I mean is that if we are going to live the good life or live into that, we would do well to know what that is. We would do no well what it looks like to inhabit that type of place where God is reigning now. See, this is not something that is abstracted from life. It's not like the kingdom of God and the Sermon on the Mount is like an ethical framework alone. No, this is a part of this framework that Matthew is building and this picture that Jesus is helping to construct of what does it look like to be the type of women and men who live in such a way that when people encounter us, our neighbors, our coworkers, our children, when they encounter us, they go, there is love here. And that might sound kind of squishy, but that's okay. So let us hear this again, because the kingdom here in the Sermon on the Mount is really a summons to this reality, a summons for, for those of us who want to encounter life and, and who want to like dine at this table, who want to taste this thing and know its goodness. And so hear this again with that in mind. Matthew 5, 1, now when Jesus saw the crowds, and we'll get to that in a moment, he went up on the mountainside and sat down and his disciples came to him and began to teach them. And then th there's these blessings that are announced. There's the, the blessing over the poor in spirit, the mourn, those who are meek, the, the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness, so on and so forth. And then there's this little shift in verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. See, in all of what Jesus is saying here, 
in this little preamble to the rest of the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, it is both a challenge and a gift. Because these are some of Jesus' most well-known words. And, and in that respect, it's a challenge because they can be sanitized in our imagination. They can become so familiar that we even forget how radical this is. So just to, to illustrate this, um, if Jesus were to show up today and he were to, I don't know, uh, perform an interracial marriage, would that be surprising to any of, any of us in the room? No, we'd be like, we'd almost expect it. Like, yes, this is, okay, this is great. Like, and, and Jesus would, in effect, be putting his stamp of approval on that dynamic of a marriage. Yes? Okay. So if Jesus showed up in the Jim Crow South and did that, what do you think would happen? What, what would Jesus be saying about, which would be kind of ironic because Jesus wouldn't have blonde hair or fair skin, be a, a short brown man <laughs> performing a marriage ceremony. But, but like, do you get like, that would be intense. Those are some of the reasons that churches were burned in the American South. I mean, this is, this is intense stuff. So when Jesus is coming here, this is maps on to that level of scandal. So I just, I, I don't want to get too excited, but, and, I, and I don't want to oversell this here, but man, if we, if we don't start to grasp this reality, that what Jesus is announcing here is scandalous, then we might, we might miss this. And I love how uh, Pincus Lapid, who's an Orthodox Jew, wrote this short commentary in the Sermon on the Mount. He d describes it like this. The history of the impact of the Sermon on the Mount can largely be described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything in it that is shocking, demanding, and uncompromising and render it harmless. In other words, like when we come to the table, when we come to the kingdom of God table, we would do well to recognize that we already have some food in our mouth. Like we've been chewing on some food, what, what is described as the domestication of everything shocking and demanding and uncompromising. We've been chewing on this food and so we need to rinse our mouths out so we can actually taste the goodness of the kingdom. And so um, we're gonna just start slowly here. Uh, this is not a trick question. A response is, is, is good here. What comes before chapter five? Four. Boom. Chapter four, yes, okay, this is fantastic. So when we see that the Sermon on the Mount has some context, it immediately brings some color. So just hear these first words of, of chapter five again. When Jesus saw the crowds, now ask, who are the crowds? And might we know who said crowds are? Yes, you may. Uh, turn back or just look up to Matthew four twenty-three. This, this line right here, uh, when Jesus saw the crowds, builds on this fundamental portrayal that Matthew has of Jesus. Matthew 4, 23. Jesus went throughout the Galilee. This is this northern region of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. And, and listen to this. Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from the Galilee, that northern region, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. 
I don't know if you heard in verse 23, but Matthew gives in these words here kind of a roadmap for where Jesus is going. Jesus went throughout the Galilee, that northern region, and he's teaching, proclaiming the good news, or I like how Scott McKnight says it, he's gospeling the good news. And that last one, healing basically all the stuff among all the people, just indiscriminate healing. So he's, he's teaching, gospeling the good news, and healing. And what you see as you move forward from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is you, you're going to see Jesus teach in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You're going to see him gospel the good news, and then you're going to see him heal a bunch of people. It's this roadmap that is being ushered in right here before this inaugural teaching. And, and in that framework, what you see, and this is so compelling, because we're asking that question, who are the crowds? Well, it's it's these people from the Jewish regions and people from the Decapolis and Syria and beyond the Jordan. It's, it's Jew and Gentile. And what are these people doing? You see it at the end of 25 there. They followed him. Now, the first marker of a disciple or, or, or a practicing Christian, you could say, is to follow Jesus. Like that language maps perfectly on to what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, is to follow Jesus. So all of a sudden, all of the people who are outside of the religious in-group are disciples of Jesus. They're following him. The crowds are the ones following Jesus. And so when what we see in the next verse and we pick up in chapter five is that when Jesus sees kind of this motley crew, he takes a seat. He, 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 this is the table is set. And I don't really want to oversell the significance, maybe just a little bit, but if we miss this, we might actually miss what Matthew is hopeful to portray here. See, when, when Jesus goes up on a mountain, and this may not be new information, but it's, it's exciting. Um, when Jesus goes up on a mountain, all of a sudden, to the listeners and to those seeing it, they're like, oh, what's he going to do? What's going what's gonna to happen here? And then he sits down, which is, this is what your rabbi would do in the synagogue. They would go, and actually the, the congregation would stand, and those who would teach would take a seat. See, Jesus is doing, this is a Moses move. Matthew is mapping Jesus on to Moses, and th this, is, this is amazing. I mean, Matthew is working to bring Moses to mind whenever we encounter Jesus, and I love how uh, the, the Jesuit priest, Daniel Harrington, describes this. It says, in the ancient Near East, mountains were considered the homes of the gods and sacred sites. And then Harrington brings us to the Exodus account. He says, in Exodus, the Torah, or the law of Moses, is revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. And just as Moses received God's commandments or God's words on Sinai, Jesus reveals God's will on the mountain. See, not only does, is this like a Moses move, but throughout the gospel, you're going you're gonna to see that that's why Jesus is departing to Egypt. That that's why there's going to be a threat on his life. Even the structure of the gospel, there's these five teaching units that Jesus have that maps on to the five books of Torah. It's just, it's brilliant. It's literary art because Matthew is saying more than he's saying. It's almost like a wink and a nod to all of the people present. See, Matthew, although he's not like saying, dear reader, I'm narrating this, 
He's narrating it, and he's speaking to a Jewish audience, and so all of these moves are inviting them in, and that is why it's so incendiary and so upside down. And, and as soon as you see Jesus go up the mountain, you see him sit down, it is electric. And what makes the Beatitudes pop, it's not their novelty. It's really that Jesus is saying an, an, a new thing in an old way. And, and what I mean is, is that this framework of blessing, it's been done for a while. There's a history in the Jewish scriptures. If you go to the, the songs of the people of Israel, you open up Psalm 1, blessed is the one who does not walk in the way of the wicked. This blessing language, this beatitudes. Or, or you go to the longest psalm, Psalm 119, and you see it sort of, blessed are those who walk, whose ways are blameless. So this blessing language has a, has a rich history in the people of Israel. It's in their corporate songs, but it's even reinterpreted. So when Jesus comes on the scene, it's not just the language of the Psalms that are there. It's people who have taken up that language and are starting to live out of it and announcing other kinds of blessings. There's another Jesus who 150 years before Jesus was of Nazareth was on the scene. His name's Jesus ben Sirah. And this Jesus uh, had this little blessing framework. And just listen to these. There are nine whom I would call blessed. In a tenth, my tongue proclaims. Blessed is the man who can, and notice who gets the blessing. Blessed is the man who can rejoice in his children. Blessed is the man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Blessed is the one who does not sin with the tongue. Blessed is the one who doesn't serve an inferior. Blessed is the one who finds a friend. Blessed is the one who speaks to attentive listeners. And greatest is the one who finds wisdom, and none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. So at first blush, uh, Jesus ben Sira, his little blessing statements sound kind of Bible-y. Even that last one there, none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. And it would make sense, you know, he's a, like a rabbi 150 years before Jesus, so his mind is saturated in scripture. These are the stories that he's living out of. But when you look at all of those together, do they sound like Jesus's blessings? Thank you for the head nod there, Christy. No, they, they do not sound like Jesus's blessings. And that's the point. See, this is kind of in the air. This is what blessing looks like. It's for the man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. See, Jesus comes into that space and he starts to speak a different type of blessing. So he is saying a new thing in an old way. And remember, who's Jesus with? He's with the crowds. He's with those who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed. And these are the people, those who are like literally on the margins. And there's no, <laughs> there's no like support network. There's no um, way to care for the poor. There's not social security. There's no way that they can reach out to a governing official and say, hey, I'm not gonna make my rent this week. Like, th there's, that's not happening. They're utterly destitute, and yet when Jesus sees these people, the outcast, the misfit, the weirdo, like the gender non-conforming, what do they hear pronounced over them? Blessed. Like, come on, Jesus. See, Jesus, this is how Scott McKnight puts it. He says, Jesus tells the world that this motley crew around him is the true people of God. 
those who will populate the kingdom and enjoy the bounty of that kingdom. So when we come to the table, this is who's there. And that, that just entirely repositions how we might see this teaching. And yet, we have that food in our mouth, and so we need to continue to rinse it out. So we're just going to do a couple of distortions, and, and this is, it's like back in the day when you'd go to the dentist, and they'd have the spit thing, you know what I'm talking about? Like you, they're going to, so now they just have a cool little suction thing, but I'm, we're going to literally, the little spittoon. So the first distortion is this, and if you're a note taker, this is for you. Uh, the Beatitudes are an ethical ladder leading to blessing. So this is really the first distortions. And, and in other words, this, this little distortion would, would say that Jesus is outlining a progressive path to blessing. So it'd be something like if you start out poor in spirit, then that gets you to a place where you can mourn. And if you mourn, then you're poised to advance to meekness. And if you're living in that place of meekness, you know, restraining your strength, not using your position to your own advantage. If you're meek, then, then you're probably going to be able to hunger and thirst after righteousness, so on and so forth. This is not what Jesus is doing. He's not creating an ethical ladder that leads to blessing. Because Jesus is describing the way things already are. So it's less of an if-then statement and more of a this-is-what's-happening kind of a statement. And, and we, we get to this when we think about the word that Jesus uses at the beginning. It's this word blessed. And you don't have to say it out loud because I know we're a chatty bunch. Um, but when you think of blessed, like, like just imagine what, what, what might come to your mind so right now, I'm, uh, there's like uh, many a hip-hop songs that come to my mind. Um, but it generally, like th this language of blessing, it, it's this wishing of good for myself or another person. And now, is that evil? No. In fact, you see it littered throughout the scriptures. We, we see it in prayers. We see God announcing blessing in this way. It's just that Jesus is not doing that type of blessing in the Sermon on the Mount. And specifically... In the Beatitudes, see, in the, uh, there's these two words for blessing in the Greek that have this Hebrew backdrop. And one is like what we just talked about. It's the wishing of good for another or for yourself. But there's another. It's this word makarios. Go ahead and say that with me. Makarios. Makarios. Yes, this type of blessing is less and really not a I hope they're blessed or I hope I'm blessed. And it's a reflection of a current blessing in virtue of who they already are. Like this is, in light of your condition, it's not that your condition is blessed, so it's not that you're poor in spirit and therefore you're blessed, it's no. Because of this reality, in position to me, you are blessed. This is who you already are. See, Jesus is, is, is gonna construct this corporate image in the language of blessing, reflecting what is already true of them. It's not something they have to attain. It's not if they be, become poor in spirit, then they'll get there. No, it's this is who you are, and in virtue of who you are, in reference to the kingdom of God, you are at the table. The, the blessing is here right now. It's not something you have to climb a ladder to get to. See, this is... This is kind of like saying, you are this, therefore this is yours. Not if you're this, then this will be yours. Do you see the difference? You are already this. 
And, and interesting, what, what this leads to is this second distortion. It's that the, the Beatitudes are separate individual commitments, like they're separate individual moral commitments. And that's not to say that out in the rest of the New Testament that like is meekness something not to be sought? No, when Jesus, um, there's one author who will say when Jesus's heart is open, we see that he is gentle and lonely, that word gentle is the same for meek. So it's not that meekness is a like, I don't know, an immoral character quality or something, or something not to be a, a, attained. No, it's, it's actually a good thing. It's just not necessarily what Jesus is doing here. But, but because we want the Beatitudes, or I'll say I want the Beatitudes to function like an if-then thing, or if you do this, then you'll get this, I, I, this, I have this temptation to make the Beatitudes into individual moral commitments. But this, this helps us to see how this is more of a whole picture than individual things. Look, look again at verse 3. Because you don't need like an advanced degree in Bible or anything like that to see this. You just have to start looking for patterns and repeated words. So this is what we read in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now jump down to verse 10. We read this, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So whose is the kingdom of heaven? Like, who, who's, whose is it? Is it the poor in spirit, or is it those who are persecuted for righteousness? Y yes. <laughs> Thank you, Linnea. Yeah, it's... This is, this is what um, is used by multiple gospel authors. It's this literary device called an inclusio. And an inclusio is simply a bracket, a, a frame to explain the information in between it. And I, I like how uh, Dr. Tim Mackey at the Bible Project d describes this kind of like a, uh, a stained glass window. And so if you think about this, the individual pieces of stained glass, they are they can be beautiful. They, they uh, can have a virtue in and of themselves. And yet when they are composed in such a way that you see them collectively, it creates this beautiful image that one of them by themselves was never meant to carry the weight of that. That's what's happening here with these beatitudes. And so when we take them and we pursue them as individual moral commitments, it's not incongruent with Jesus's teaching or the ethic of Jesus. It's just, it's, they're not what they're meant to portray here. They're, they're building this image, this corporate image of who the type of people are who inhabit God's kingdom. And just hear these pieces together and see if someone comes to mind. A poor in spirit, mourning, meek, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking. And, and then when you take even the last one, persecuted. Like, does this sound like someone you'll see in the story of the Gospels? If you're like, I don't know. Think of, think of Jesus. This is like the classic Sunday school answer. Like, Jesus is the, yes, this becomes this picture. Like, Jesus is standing in solidarity with all of these people and saying, this is what it looks like to inhabit my kingdom. This is where the blessing is. And it becomes a little tricky because if we're standing outside of that, like if you this morning are thinking, oh, gosh, I don't, I don't really feel like I'm really meek. Um, I, don't, I don't necessarily, am I poor in spirit? Is that spiritual? Am I actually poor? Like, just take a breath. 
Like, we don't have to solve this. We're going to be working through what does it mean to actually look at the type of people who inhabit God's kingdom and what, what Jesus might be saying through these things. But we, we would do well to see that this is a, a picture. And Jesus here is this master artisan who's constructing this corporate image. Because this is, this, these are the ones to whom the kingdom of God belongs. And this is, um, this is beautiful, this is compelling, and, and there's this quote from um, Scott McKnight, and I'm going I'm to jump ahead to, to the end here, but um, he, he says this, and I, I came across this, and I, I just thought, wow, okay, yes, these, these words are beautiful, and they're compelling, but, and he says, the Sermon on the Mount is, a, is the moral portrait of Jesus' own people. But because this portrait doesn't square with the church, this sermon turns from instruction to indictment. And the contrast between Jesus' vision and our life bothers many of us. You see, Jesus is sitting up on the mountain, and he starts to say some stuff <laughs> to some people who would have never had these things said to them. These are not the people who have blessing announced over them. And yet there Jesus is in this place of authority in making this Moses move, announcing this is what God's kingdom looks like. And really, I, I love how commentator Walter Warren Carter frames this. This is, check, check this out. In the Beatitudes, Jesus has the disciples imagine a different world a different identity for themselves, a different set of practices, a different relationship to the status quo. And why imagine? Not because it is impossible and not because it is escapist, not because it is fantasy, but because it begins to counter patterns imbibed from the culture of the imperial world. See, some of us, and I would count myself in this, have been feasting at other tables for so long and calling it reality. And I was, uh, I was, I was listening to a, a podcast yesterday and this podcast it was, it was a, a conversation between two folks and it was a, quite a, it was about an article about how the evangelical church is de deconstructing itself. And so these are all really flashy words in 2021 slash 2022 slash what year is it? And as I was listening, I, I was like, oh my goodness. Y yes. It, like I, I am the type of person who likes to feast at the table of critique and judgment of the end because I think I've arrived with the right answer. And if they just came and saw the things that I saw, finally the church would start to function right. It's like that self-righteousness. Anybody else have a little bit of that rise up in them? See, Jesus' words don't come to those people out there. They actually come to me to remind me that I have been eating at a table and Jesus wants to invite me to a, to a table that will bring life. Because the other one, it tastes good. It just doesn't bring life. And the difference is this one, the kingdom of God, not only tastes good, but it does bring life. And it brings texture and it brings vibrancy. And it, it actually yields something complete and whole, which is what the kingdom of God is all about. 
So my hope is, is, is that we would be bothered by Jesus's words. And that as a community, we would slowly and surely take these words in to be life for us as we embody them. I hope we might do more than just think nice things about what Jesus taught, but we might actually receive them as a way of being truly human. And that'll take practice. And what will happen is we'll try these things together. And then get this, uh, we will fail. And then what we'll do is we'll start saying, well, what got in the way? And then we'll look at that thing and then we'll resolve it in our hearts to follow Jesus because we have a space and a place that is enduring that we can actually root ourselves. We have more than a mantra for the moment. We have a community with whom we can live into the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm.